Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I am so excited for you to be joining me with here on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Today is a particular special episode, and it's a special episode because I'm getting to talk with somebody that I've wanted to talk with for, man, probably a year and a half, maybe two years, and that is Mark Knoll. And he is the author of The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a minute. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to let you know about a couple of things. The first thing is this, is that we want to create a place to have difficult conversations. Because you can't just have a conversation with uh, with just any old person. As, as much as may, we maybe wish that that was uh possible and hope that that is possible that is not always the case but no matter whether or not you have someone in your life to where you can have those conversations we want to have those conversations here on the learner's corner podcast and really the reason why uh where we want to do that or what couple of things that help us drive doing that is these two beliefs that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone regardless of whether or not we agree with them and that we don't need to necessarily end conversations by being uh, 100% in agreement that it is okay for us to disagree and have dialogue and the last thing is this is that we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything whatever that subject is because everything has something to teach us we can learn something from everything, from the serious to the trivial. Now, today we're going to be diving into uh, a very fascinating conversation and one that I have been uh, trying to learn more about just for a while now. And that is around this idea of thinking and faith and intellectualism as well. And how do you use your intellect and engaging with your faith as well. And I first found out about this book. Uh, I want to say, I think it was at the beginning of uh, 2021, I think. Okay, I looked it up in real time and it was like the summer of, you know, 21. So about a year ago, not quite as far back as I thought, but still a little good back. And I remember hearing about this conversation or hearing about this book in a conversation between Ed Stetzer and Carrie Newhoff, and I'll link to the episode. It's a really great conversation, really great podcast episode. And I remember looking this up and going, okay, I need to try to talk with this guy. And here we are a year later, and the conversation is happening. And, you know, I really love engaging uh, with just ideas like this. And if you have stuff that you would love us to cover, maybe there's things that you're thinking about that you think would be good for us to talk about or learn from on the podcast, I would love to hear from you. And the best way to reach out to me is learnersquarterpodcast at gmail.com. Reach out with any potential guests or topics or anything like that that you think might be good for us to engage with here on the podcast. So let me tell you a little bit about Mark and then we're going to dive right into my conversation. So Mark Knoll is the Francis A. McAnery Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame. He, his many other books include A History of Christianity in the United States, in Canada, the Civil War as a Theological Crisis, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind, and America's God, from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln. And most recently, his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, has been updated with a new preface and afterward, and that is largely what we are going to talk about in our conversation today. So without any further wait, here is my conversation with Mark Knoll. Well, Mark, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about has to do with uh, your, you know, recently re-released book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And I figured that might be just a good place to start of, I would just love uh, to hear your thoughts on, um, 
and kind of why you chose this this idea, this term of, you know, the scandal of the evangelical mind. Sure. Uh, and I think I can put it in a, a, a theological frame, which will take three or four sentences to, to explain instead of one pithy quick sentence. But Christian people believe that God is responsible for the world that exists and then also for the, the interactions that uh, take place in the world. And Christian people, as well as others, also believe that humans have the capacity to understand the world and things going on in the world. And believers, I think, have that sense because they believe that God made humans with, with that capacity. But we, we do see in the scriptures that when uh, new questions arise, the injunction is usually come and see. So when uh, Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip replied about from, from come see Jesus, come and see, come and see. And I think that's, that's the procedure that uh, lies behind good academic work, good scholarship, good scientific work, good efforts to understand the, uh, the way people are interacting. You want to go out and, and look at things and try to see them and have, have some kind of a response and then get crit criticism of that response, but all, all depending upon things that you're trying to understand by going out and looking at them. And I think that the, uh, uh, the scandalous uh, intellectual uh, uh, factors of our day, including evangelical Protestants, come about often when people don't follow that procedure, when people instead listen to voices that are telling them what they should see rather than uh, going out and seeing it. And the voices are often not the voices that have studied long, that have subjected themselves to criticism, that have allowed the process of give and take over what's being seen and how to interpret what's being seen, who, who have not uh, uh, undertaken that process. And so the result is, that uh, people have opinions about what the world is like and what's going on in the world based not upon good procedure, criticism, self uh, back and forth, but based upon just people telling them what they think they should see when, when they're looking at the world. And that, that I think has led to some really damaging conclusions, some really damaging ideas that take root even though there's really no solid, empirical is a technical word, but there's no solid coming and seeing to base those ideas. I would say with for, for the white evangelical world, this was a problem, I think, early earlier because of kind of the, uh, some of the legacies of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism was actually very good in many ways, preserved the notion that the Bible is supernatural, that miracles really happen. But there was a rejection of the uh, um, sort of mainstream American academy, late 19th, early 20th century, because it was moving away from those Christian matters. And the fundamentalists wanted to preserve Christianity, but in preserving Christianity, they said, well, well, things coming from the universities just, just are all wrong. And I think that that was an excess. But, but in our day, last maybe 20 and 30 years, I think the, the voices that are not based upon coming and seeing tend to come from the uh, maybe the partisan in the political world more. And that, that's actually a change from, uh, I think, when the, when the book was originally published. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about like some of the, I don't know if the right word would be factors that have, that have helped us or that have led us to the point to where, like we're not, to use your analogy and you know that that come and see analogy to where we are not looking for ourselves like we are looking for other people um to tell us what to see or you know uh using the mind you know tell us what to think right right uh, yes well uh, certainly a factor that has become much more important over the last well in the 21st century are our social media um Social media do some very good things, allow people to connect with relatives and friends that they, they haven't seen for a long time. And, and, and obviously on the internet, you find out all sorts of useful information as well as not stuff that's not so useful. But it's, it's also been, social media have also served as a kind of megaphone. They uh, amplify often extreme voices that are interesting because they are extreme and penalize voices that are trying to pull problems apart, look carefully at problems, say, well, on the one hand this, on the one hand that. Twitter's not really good for the, on the one hand this and the other hand that. Yeah. And I think whatever 
uh, long-term American, whatever long-term church, whatever long-term social instincts have made problems of intellectual life for all sorts in America. This, this, this is a major new factor. And uh, it, it, it has, I think, um, in some ways deepened the problem while also making more good resources available as well. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you've seen that has led to um, us, and again, you know, giving up our ability or our willingness to think for ourselves? Yes, yeah, so I'm at an age of where old academics always say it was always better when I was young, which I think you have to avoid that kind of instinct. But for, for Christian communities, I do think, and this is coming from talking with younger uh, faculty, younger ministers, there probably is a general decline of, of widespread biblical knowledge. Mm -hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't think that's, I think you can overstate that because there's still a lot of uh, good Bible study and, and, and many uh, solid sermons week by week and a lot of good literature, but there does seem to be a diminution of comprehensive understanding of the scriptures. And, and when that happens, um, believers like everyone else are gonna be looking for sure words to help them orient life in the present. And if the sure words coming loud and extremely uh, uh, vigorous are those that are pushing people away from solid intellectual procedures, solid um, uh, instincts about how to figure out things, pull things apart, see the different angles of things. If these voices become louder even than the scriptures, then, then we do, we, that's, that's an added, and I think a, a, a negative factor for intellectual life in general. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on what's led to that decrease in biblical knowledge? Because like, even like I'm, as, as I'm listening to it, and, and I can't remember off the top of my head, whether or not you talk about this in the book or not, but it makes me think that we have gone backwards because it makes me think of what happened hundreds of years ago to where people had to go to churches um, yeah. and essentially be told, you know, from, from the priest or whoever was the, the leading person of the congregation, Hey, here's, here's the word of God. Um, but yeah, any, any thoughts on that? Well, certainly it was historically one of the strengths in American civilization that the democratic principles supported and were supported by organizations like the American Bible Society that said, we want to have serious Christian literature, particularly the Bible, American Tract Society, they also did all sorts of other serious Christian literature at every level. So popular and elementary, mid-level, kind of semi-popular, and then fairly technical and academic. We want all literate people to have access to the scriptures and this kind of Christian, and, and they were not completely successful, but there was dramatic success. Now, this whether or not in the last 30 and 40 years, uh, the whole culture is moving away from reliance upon print, linear reasoning toward images and uh, reasoning that's based more upon the quick grab you. People debate that, but, but uh, it, it does seem that what had been the church's great contribution to just nurture generation after generation, a pretty good general knowledge of the Bible, that that, that task has become harder when there's more competition for uh, interest, there's more competition for time, there's more competition for money, um, in, in the, in the world that we, we now have. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I've been like, I've been thinking about that a lot, particularly, you know, I, I work at a church as well. And one of the things that I've been thinking of is, um, you know, there's so many places that we can consume content from, right. whether right. that be a, a podcast or it could be, you know, CNN or Fox news or MSNBC, all of that stuff. Um, and at best, we have an hour to an hour and a half each <laughs> each week, as opposed to you know twenty four hour programming. Uh, well, that is that is actually a pertinent comment. I, I probably should have said something about that myself. But back in the day, I mean, when I was growing up, you 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 watched ABC, NBC, or CBS, and if you happened to be around a big city, you might have had one other additional television channel. People got a lot more information from the radio, but but there was also um, more opportunity for people to read on their own, less competition. Now, as you suggest, uh, if, if you want to be entertained 
by, by professional entertainment standards, day and night, you, you simply can't get enough. And uh, the, the, the kind of disciplines that are required in every kind of serious life, I think are under, under pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on what are some of the differences that you've seen? You know, uh, this book came out 30 years ago um, and, right, and things right. have changed. And I would love to hear like both for, you know, for the better and for the worse, what have you seen that has changed in the last 30 years? Well, certainly there are positive things that have happened with, I would say, the general Christian engagement with intellectual matters. And then I would say also for the specifically evangelically, white evangelical engagement. Um, uh, this is a, an idea that uh, George Marsden, who's now re retired from Calvin College and, and the University of Notre Dame has, has articulated, that there, there is in uh, almost every academic field you can think of, a serious, either self-consciously Christian or Christian-friendly component of active scholars that with just a few exceptions did not exist 30 years ago. So when, when I was, trying to be a young historian, 1970s, 1980s. There was George who was doing that kind of work. There was Timothy Smith at Johns Hopkins University. There were one or two professors at Princeton University. There were a couple of, of uh, professors teaching at uh, Christian colleges. But there were very, very few examples of first-rate historical work that was operating within the, the boundaries, the parameters of the, the academy but doing so with a, a, a real strong interest in Christian groups and not, not an interest to take them down, but to understand them. It, it was critical to some degree, but it was also empathetic to a great degree. Today, you cannot shake a stick at the examples of this kind of work. It comes from uh, almost all uh, areas of the Protestant world, the Catholic world, or even the Orthodox in, in uh, the United States younger, middle-aged, older uh, scholars are producing just a tremendous amount of favorable uh, historical works about Christian groups or empathetic work or work that says, well, let's take these people seriously on, on their own terms. And that simply did not exist 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, in a few disciplines like philosophy, um, where the Society for Christian Philosophers is, is one of the largest, maybe the largest subunit of, of the organized philosophical world, you, you, we, you just had a tremendous outpouring of really serious philosophical engagement with matters in, in, the, in the Christian faith. I could start naming names, but, but there, are, there are people who, who are widely recognized in, in the, in the, uh, the, the, amongst philosophers. And, and the, some of the unbelieving philosophers don't like these people at all. But, but they're there because of how skillful they've operated. And, and the same is true in um, sociology, the same is true in literary studies. It's not as though the Christians of, of different sorts dominate these disciplines, but there are Christian voices. And then I think you have to say also Christian sympathetic voices that, that are secular people yet are looking empathetically. In, in almost all the academic fields, and this is, a, this is not a completely new situation, but it's dramatically improved from 50 years ago. Now where things have not proceeded so favorably is in the connections and that kind of vigorous, not dominant, but vigorous intellectual labor in, in the academy and connections to the ch churches. And I think what, we, what we've seen is uh, more of a disconnect from the world that has been defined and, and worked in by serious Christian academics in the secular world, the, the, uh, the, the wonderful work that's going on in Catholic colleges and the Christian colleges, the, the Protestant colleges. But that work doesn't seem to uh, have had a tremendous impact upon all the population that we known as Christian or known, known particularly as evangelical. And I think the things we were talking about earlier, the competition for uh, attention, the uh, pressure on, on time, and then in particular, I would say the politicization of public speech. These things have, I think, made it more difficult for churches to bring together those who might have some kind of well-established uh, uh, well expertise 
and the broader uh, Christian population, broader evangelical population, because that population tends to listen to voices that are not necessarily those that have earned their uh, rights, so to speak, to, to speak, but have, have great assurance, great volume, uh, and uh, sometimes a very captivating stories about what's going wrong in the world. And, and when those stories are not checked, uh, then, then the results are not good. And it's not as though the academics are just need to be, you know, the people need to be listened to the academics. There needs to be an interchange that goes both ways. But that interchange, I think, has not been particularly good. And it means that the, uh, the real progress, don't get too, we don't want to get too excited about it, mm -hmm. but the real progress that has taken place in, in scientists who are Christians, uh, philosophers who are Christians, sociologists who are Christians, psychologists who are Christians, the real, the, the connection to the broader Christian world, the broader evangelical world has not been ideal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in a little bit, I do, I do want to talk about what the church's role can be in this, uh, but I but I want to talk about, you know, more of a, uh, the diagnosis of where we are yeah. uh, today. And and one of the things that I've been uh, thinking about, and, and you, I think, talk about it in your book as well, um, which is just astounding to me is that it, there almost just seems to be like a disregard for, for history in it too, of, right. you know, what happened right. or I'll, I'll, I, I should say certain parts of, yeah. of history. It's not all of history. Um, and I would just love your thoughts on um, how, how that plays out in this conversation as well. I do think there are Christian and evangelical um, ideas about the past that are, in, a, in essence, reactions to overstatements in the general public. So in, in an earlier period, um, there, were, there was a, quite a bit of discussion in, in topics I, I was interested in. What, what, what does the founding of the United States look like? And there were some uh, very uh, influential books, partly by academics, partly by others as well, you know, uh, church people think maybe they, they were involved, but really the founding of the United States was, was the first really secular founding of, of, of a modern country. Well, that strong statement generated pushback from those who said, no, 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 look at, look at George Washington, he's praying at Valley Forge. Look, look at uh, people like Patrick Henry, a very active in church. Look, look at uh, Benjamin Franklin calling for prayer at the Constitutional Convention. The United States was a real Christian country thoroughly. So you got, you got one pendulum swing saying this was a completely secular nation. The other pendulum swing, no, 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 it was a Christian nation. And, and the, the difficulty was that the extremes made it hard to parse what may have been considered positive from a Christian view and what was not positive from a Christian view. But there, there's been, uh, in the last 60 years, just a, a wealth of scholarship on uh, some things that were in fact uh, positive, moral, uh, dependent upon, at least in some sense, the, the scriptures, but then also much greater attention to things that really were despicable. I mean, the, the the founding fathers were worried that a two penny tax on tea would lead to slavery and they held people in, in real slavery uh, so that they were overreacting to a, a situation. But to, to get a, a clear picture of the, that founding, you, you just you can't go in thinking, well, was it Christian or not? Was it secular or not? You just, you just have to have discrimination. But again, in our, in our day, discrimination, patience, trying to say, well, yes and no, on the one hand, the other hand, that, that can be a real real struggle, particularly in the, in the popular. It's been the same in the last maybe 10 years for uh, increased social concern about how uh, black people continue to be treated in, in the United States. Uh, there are some uh, voices that I would call extreme voices that want to say, well, uh, every single aspect of every single part of American life and history has been dominated by anti-black white supremacy. The pushback, no, that's not true. Most of American history has been honorable, just, good, with a few minor mistakes. Well, I think both of those opinions are wrong. As, as, a, as a believer who's worked 
now, uh, gosh, I don't know how many years I'm going to it's 40, 50 plus years looking at how, in particular, the Bible was used to support slavery, to attack slavery. I want to say the situation was much more complicated. Mm -hmm. There are real, genuine, widespread factors in American history that show a lamentable treatment of African Americans as less than human. But there are also a great part of American history where there were pushback against that, some from believers, actually a lot from believers, some from, not from believers. And, the, and, the, and the, the picture of US history is more complicated than any simple moral judgment or defense can clarify. And that I, I think speaks into what we've been talking about earlier that uh, the extreme loudly proclaimed um, in some cases, uh, illustrated with real flair and, and professionalism, those kind of views drown out the, the kinds of study where people have tried to go and tried to see in detail the complexities of what has happened throughout uh, US history. And, and, and uh, the, the, the general question about historical sense, obviously I'm a historian, so I think people should have a better sense, but. And it's a cliche when you ask a historian to explain something, the first answer is always, well, it's complicated. <laughs> well, that's a cliche because it speaks to the truth. Mm -hmm. And to find, to find a, a, a real good sense of what's happened in, in US history, you just have to be patient. You have to say, there's been almost, on almost everything, there's been some bad things that happened, there's been some good things that happened, and it's a, it's a real challenge to figure out in any particular place, any particular circumstance, where the bad and where the good has prevailed. Yeah, and just as you were talking, it even just makes me think of again. Again, you know, uh, we're we're hitting on a little bit of stuff that we already talked about. But when I guess whenever you live in a society that is very like uh, encourages fast pacedness or encourages productivity, efficiency, getting as much done as possible. Um, you look for simple answers because that helps you move at a faster speed. And then just what you were saying. And when you got two extremes that are, that are yelling, yelling at each other and you're like, okay, what's the simple thing? And it's like, well, it isn't simple. And so yeah. we look for somebody to tell us what to do. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? No, I think that is exactly right. And, and, uh, Maybe this will sound just uh, like uh, sour grapes, but the testimony is to look at the million sellers. The million sellers usually are, are giving a false picture or an incomplete picture or, or a distorted picture. Uh, the books that sell reasonably well, but not in that category, are usually the ones that, uh, that include some dialogue with other, in this case, historians, some effort to say, well, so-and-so got uh, a, B, and C, right? But was what was deficient on D and E, and, and those are the kind of books, as as you point out, <laughs> those are the kind of books that are really really hard to put into a thirty second opinion on, on some some complicated issue. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I would love for you to talk about, which for me, uh, it, it's just so funny because you know I was asking about history, and I my my tendency was to go, oh yeah, this is probably something that has happened, you know, in the last fifty years or so, and you go and say, actually, a lot of it has to do with individualism, which was, um, you know, who Jonathan Edwards had, had a big uh, part in playing in that. And I would just love your thoughts on how, how those things together, how Jonathan Edwards and this uh, initiative towards individualism has affected us, yeah. you know, today, 150 years plus later. So I think people today who are still uh, willing to call themselves evangelicals, which I do, if I'm allowed to define what that means, and I define evangelical as, as, a, as a series of religious uh, emphases on the authority of the Bible, on the uh, a theology of atonement through the death of Christ, um, through the need to have personal engagement with, with uh, Christian faith. I mean, that kind of evangelical religion had existed in, in different forms way back in, in history, but was given a kind of boost by people like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers in England in the 18th century. And one of the things that comes out of evangelical tradition that is often positive is this sense that, well, the Christian faith should not be just something you inherit, not just something you embrace because everybody around you is embracing, but the Christian faith has personal demands, personal possibilities, 
personal joys, personal sorrows, personal triumphs, a personal struggle. And that, to me, that, that is a real uh, positive um, contribution of what's, what are called the evangelical awakenings in the evangelical tradition. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to that bosom fly, uh, and, and in, in many other ways. Now, because it's complicated. <laughs> yep. That, that positive contribution to Christian existence and, and, and to the societies where evangelicals lived did have a downside. And the downside was a tendency to say, if it's inherited, if it's formal, if it's uh, well written out, if it's presented to us by those who are supposedly our intellectual betters, then it must be entirely uh, amiss. There must, there must be something fundamentally wrong with it. And that's it. that was an overreaction. And you do have the strength in American evangelical history of a lot of individual initiative, a lot of sacrificial individual activity, a lot of individuals uh, uh, going a great distance to help out others. And you have people who, uh, uh, prejudicially speaking, get a bee in their bonnet, uh, proclaim it loudly, gain a following, and bring disruption. So the, the strength of evangelical tradition, like actually the strength of most other Christian tradition, the strength of evangelical tradition, as an underside that can lead in the wrong direction. Yeah, and it, it even made me think of uh, individualism and how it plays out and going like, it, how it can lead to that, I am the creator of my own destiny right. as well too, which again, you know, all, I guess for, I would maybe call like the other extreme, you know, maybe the collect, like, I guess it would be like the collective or like the group or the society, whatever you want to say. Um, and almost like, well, society can't affect me, which, you know, I'll, I'll steal something from you and say, it's a lot more complicated. Than... <laughs> I think even, even people that want to say that Christian faith demands a real strong individual response and individual calling need to realize that culture is real. And by culture, all I mean is, the things we take for granted without thinking about them. And, and the things that we take for granted without thinking about them do influence the way in which people regard uh, choices. It, it, it lets some things from the outside world be magnified when you hear them. It obscures other things that are trying to come to us from the outside world. So that uh, not to recognize that people are cultural beings as we take different things for granted is, is to... Uh, uh, accentuate the possibility that you just described where individuals say i i create my own destiny I, i'm the master of my fate and it's up to me to choose what i'm going to be well yes individual choice individual uh actions are very important but they're not all consuming they're not everything in the story yeah um I, I want to go back to something that you had had just mentioned, and there may not be anything there, but you know, you said uh, that there's some sometimes things that we just take for granted uh, in this, and I would just be curious uh, for your thoughts of as it pertains to what we've been talking about. What are some of the things that you say that hey, we 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 could potentially be taking this thing for granted, or it's affecting us more than what we realize? Sure, uh, one of the things that um, the the book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, takes up is, is how evangelicals approach scientific matters. And an example of what uh, I think you're referring to would, would be the, the very strong Christian, not just evangelical, belief that God is the creator of the world. So if, if we believe that God is the creator of the world, what should we take for granted? In my view, as I tried to explain at the start of our time together, we should take for granted that if we're going to find out about the world that God made, we need, to, we need to look at it really carefully, and we need to have the proper kind of respect for people who've given their lives to look at it really carefully. Not, not an automatic deference, not saying we'll just accept everything the, the, the people with a lot of experience say, but, but the proper kind of deference. For the evangelical community, has been a real problem since the 1870s and 80s, particularly 1910, 1920, with evolution. Well, if you believe God made the world, can you also believe in evolution? And the instinct, the assumption, 
particularly actually in the 20th century. It wasn't so much true earlier. The assumption is, well, no, you can't. If God made the world, how could, he, how could it develop? How could species develop, change over time, over billions of years? Actually, in the early days of, of uh, evolutionary theory, there were a lot of serious Christian people, really conservative Christian people who said, well, look, if you, if you do not take evolution as a kind of general philosophy of life, everything is random as it develops, but say evolution should be considered the results of disciplined experiments and inquiry, then we can see how uh, under divine oversight, uh, evolution is possible. And that actually was a prevailing Christian view into the, most evangelicals even, in, into the 1920s. Things shifted in, in the 1920s. There's only been in recent, uh, maybe 10 or 15, 20 years, that there have been more and more serious Orthodox Christians who say, when I, uh, as a scientist, affirm the reality of evolution, I'm not affirming that the whole physical world is just governed by randomness that's going nowhere except under its own initiative. But I'm saying that disciplined research has shown species change over time. As a Christian believer, I want to affirm that conclusion because I affirm that God made the world and God made it possible for people to understand about the world. So I, I'm actually very encouraged that there are strongly evangelical people and organizations now who are trying to push back against a quick application of assumptions. God made the world. Yes. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's come and see what that means rather than think we know immediately what that means. That's good. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about science here. We've touched on uh, politics as well, but I would, be, I would be curious to hear any other thoughts that you have as it pertains uh, to the political nature of this conversation and how that plays out. Right. Again, um, I, I do think that the, we have a yin and yang almost in, in politically. We have uh, we have proposals and counterproposals, and uh, the political landscape has become, I think, really difficult because it's harder and harder to examine a proposal from someone not in your group mm. with any kind of objectivity. So if I'm a, a Democrat and Republican proposes something, then I think, oh, that's just those white supremacists trying to sneak in their power. If I'm a, if I'm a Republican and the Democrats propose something, the tendency is to say, well, that's just their way of trying to increase big government and run all of our lives. And there, there's, I mean, there's some, depending on where you stand politically, there, there are some reasons for thinking that way because from a Republican point of view, some of the Democratic programs have been really terrible and vice versa from, from the Democratic point of view. But um, historically, in the best times in US history, and just as a footnote here, we do live in very polemical times now, but the partisanship, 1859, 1860, before the start of the Civil War, was worse than it is today. The partisanship involving religion and politics in 1800, the election campaign between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams is worse than it is today. So things are not great by any means today, but we've seen this before. In the best times in, in American history, there have been some kind of ability to say, well, you might be a Democrat, but at least on this issue, you're making sense. You might be a Republican, but at least on this issue, you're making sense. And th those were probably not nearly so common as, as the, the extreme periods when there was partisanship. But it's that kind of willingness to, to not let your political allegiance, again, dominate all your instincts in how you're coming and seeing about the world. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, how, how fear can play out in this conversation as well and how that can be used. Um, and, and again, we've touched on it a little bit, but we would love uh, for you just sure. to elaborate on that. And I do think um, uh, calls for alarm that have tried to raise people's uh, awareness of things always appeal to fear and as part of just human history. But again, in our contemporary world, we have so many more vehicles, so many more voices that have effective means of presentation and uh, fundraisers, those who are trying to uh, establish a movement know that if, if people are afraid, they'll act 
in the way that you want them to act. And I, I do think it's not by, by no means is it a new phenomenon to have fear be a motivator, but there's just better manipulation, <laughs> worse manipulation <laughs> in, in our modern age than, than ever before. Uh, I, I want to go back to um, what, what you had mentioned. And, and again, this, I think this goes back to what we were talking about with history as well. Like it could be very easy for us to go, we're living in a time like never before. Um, it's worse than ever before. And can you tease out kind of, you know, what you, what you were mentioned, you know, uh, pre like right around the time of pre-Civil War, or even with Thomas Jefferson of kind of what things were like, because, um, we don't, we don't know. Sure. Uh, I mean, I have spent a little time studying the election campaign of 1800. And, and although in fact, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had religious views that were really quite similar. Uh, John Adams had grown up in Congregational Massachusetts, but he was a Unitarian. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was known for being a deist, but he actually was not a real consistent deist. And by the time he was running for president in 1800, he'd actually been convinced that the uh, Jesus in the New Testament were much, much better than he had thought. Now, he did go ahead and, and edit the New Testament. He read it every day but he edited out all the miracles and things. So Jefferson was by no means a, a convinced Christian believer, but they, they really were not that far apart. But because the Jefferson party was opposing what they regarded as the, the tyrannical continuation of church state establishment in Massachusetts, and the Adams party was, was uh, trying to uh, arouse people to worry about Jefferson, religion was, was hugely important and there were, there were newspapers published by the Federalists, the Adams Party, that's, that said, vote for Jefferson and you vote for no God. If Jefferson is elected, what happened in France will take place in the United States. And that's just after the French Revolution, when, when hundreds of Catholic priests were killed, when street names were changed from the names of saints to uh, astrology and, and popular culture. Uh, and there were even, I, I thought for a while this was made up, but I, I actually found the references. There were even people who said, you know, you should probably be hiding a couple copies of the Bible because if Jefferson is elected, he's going to have all the copies of the Bible taken away from you. Now that, that, that was an extreme statement. Mm -hmm. And what happened, of course, was Jefferson's elected and the Adams people are running for cover. They think you know, uh, Armageddon is just around the corner, and it turns out that Jefferson is, it doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, he, he has a few remarks that are politically uh, tinged in religion, but, but not much. The main controversy in his early years is to buy the Louisiana Purchase, and some people think that's a good idea, other things it's not. But the great fear that had been generated about electing this, this deist just just dissipated because he, he had some good things, some bad things, some mistakes, some positive uh, results of his eight years in office, but nothing like what people have been afraid of. Now, the Civil War might be seen differently because in some ways, the, the real tense and serious disagreements of 1859, 1860, early 1861 did lead on to real destruction. In today's terms, Relative to the population, the 31 million people that existed in the United States when the Civil War broke out, for the four years of the war, there was the equivalent in fatalities of a 9-11 every day. Historians now think maybe 700,000 people, maybe higher, killed during the conflict. Great material destruction wrecked across the South. I mean, that was, that was, that was really serious. But, but even... Uh, the campaigns, the political campaigns before then, did not anticipate the, the, the scope of the destruction, did not anticipate how deep the conflict would, would, would go. And, and thank goodness, we, we, we're not at that place now, and, and I don't think we'll ever come to it. We don't know, of course, the future, but people should take seriously the utter destruction of the Civil War when they move in the extreme political directions that we, we saw before the outbreak of actual hostilities in 1861. Mm. Uh, another thing that I wanted to get your take on is how conspiracy theories uh, play out in this, or maybe even like a, maybe, and again, this is maybe my theory, but a byproduct of, uh, yeah. of handing over our thinking to other people. 
I, I think that's ex exactly right. Uh, the United States is founded in some ways because of a conspiracy theory. Uh, parliament was making mistakes. Parliament was continuing taxes. Parliament wanted the American colonies to pay some of the huge bill for, for, that had come down from the uh, French and Indian War. And the, the leading patriots said, well, these are not just casual mistakes. Parliament is really out to enslave us and to take away all of our property. Well, that was just false. Uh, Parliament was making mistakes. Uh, the United States probably would have come into uh, independence with, without the American Revolution. But there was the idea that Parliament was conspiring. And, and a few of the people who remained loyal to Britain said, well, what's the evidence? Well, it's this tax on tea. And, and there's no other evidence because they're so good at hiding what, what they're doing. And I think uh, conspiracy theory in general grows from the confidence that humans have that just from just one or two scraps of information, they can figure out what's happening on a huge scale that covers all possibilities and all roads toward the future. And that's an overconfidence in human ability. And it shows really a lack of confidence in God's control of the future. Uh, I want to turn the corner a little bit and talk about you know, we we've talked a lot about you know maybe the the problem or the or the state of things, and I would love uh, to you know maybe have the rest of our conversation focus around uh, kind of like some loose some solutions or some some of the things that we can do. And so I would just love to hear from you of what and in, and one of them would obviously you know be the come and see uh, mentality um, for engaging our mind, but even would just love to hear from you of like what have you learned about engaging your mind or even like great examples that you've seen. Uh, throughout history of people who have done that. Yes, I, I do think that, that um, one of the real strengths in the Christian tradition in general is that there have been so many individuals and groups that have uh, shown what disciplined thinking can be. You go back right to the earliest days of the, of the Christian church when the, to, the, to, the, uh, to, to the apostle Paul, who was, besides being such a dedicated Christian, was a really smart guy. Uh, you, you had within a few centuries figures like Augustine in, in North Africa, who, th who thought long and hard on the nature of the Christian faith, long and hard in the situation of the Christian faith. You had great thinkers like Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. You had the leaders of the Protestant Reformation like Martin Luther and John Calvin. You had, you mentioned Jonathan Edwards earlier, clearly the most serious Bible student in colonial America and the most serious philosopher the most serious religious psychologist, because he took so seriously the challenge of thinking for the glory of God. And, and certainly there have been uh, right up in, into the present time, and it, it, get, it gets risky to mention people right toward the present, but just any number of examples of people who show the goodness that can come in learning about the world as God's creation for the glory of God when they put their minds to work. I think I've been very fortunate to, to uh, my wife and I to worship in churches, be members of one church now in, in, with, with the sabbatical when we were in, in Notre Dame mm -hmm. for 40 years, where the, where the ministers have been primarily students of the scriptures. They've, they've urged the congregation to be active in public life, but have scrupulously avoided kind of political partisanship. They provided forums in church for lay people in the congregation to talk about the things they know about. They've encouraged discussion rather than argument. And, and uh, that, that has been a, just a tremendous gift to have as a historian an awareness of, of, of much good and much bad that's happened in history, but then to be part of a local congregation where you can actually see not perfection by any means, but see different people bringing their gifts together, including their intellectual gifts, for positive reasons rather than negative reasons. Mm. Yeah. Have you seen, uh, you know, any good examples or even what, what have you learned about helping, helping other people engage, uh, engage their mind as well? Because as, as, as you said uh, earlier, you know, we have, we have the two extremes on one side, which is, which is almost pulling us away from nuance right. in a sense. Right. And I would just be curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, helping people engage in that nuance. Well, here's an, an example that's it's not exactly responding, but uh, uh, I have an acquaintance, a friend, uh, Dana Robert, who teaches uh, at Boston University School of Divinity, and she's one of the leading, uh, probably the American, leading American historian on the worldwide church. I've, I've really appreciated her 
specific writings, particularly in the history of women missionaries, which, and she's done some big books herself and edited some, but here's the point. She also, for the Methodist Church, wrote a shorter textbook designed for use in church circles that has, uh, has had the effect of bringing at least a lot, I mean, not huge numbers, but a lot of local congregations is some kind of awareness and the dramatic, remarkable spread of Christian faith around the world in the 20th and 21st, no, 21st century. How'd she do it? Well, it was an academic who said, well, writing for my denomination is a good thing to do, and, and, I, and I will do that. I think there are uh, pastors. I, I, I'm a great fan of Timothy Keller in New York City, mm -hmm. who, who doesn't try to uh, pronounce, uh, to dictate how people should think about uh, life in, in, in New York City around the world, but urges people, again, to be first Christian, and then to use their particular expertise for exploring the world and to do it, doing it so in trying to avoid extreme or partisan division of the body of Christ. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've got a, a library full of, of, of books that were people that I don't want to just mention my friends and the books that I, I like, but they really, really do have a, a lot of, uh, I'm impressed, for example, with the, uh, the, the books and, and the columns of, of, uh, of uh, let's see your first Tish Warren. Uh, yeah. But, yep. Tish Harrison Warren. Tish, Tish yep. Harrison Warren. I mean, here, here's a, 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 a person, frankly, and forthrightly Christian writing for Christian audiences, but also writing for the, for the general public. Uh, I don't know Esau McCauley, who's now a faculty member at Wheaton College, uh, where I taught for many years, but he, he's been a, a very positive voice speaking as an African-American to the general public, but also he's a good scholar of the, the, the technical work that's been done on the, the Apostle Paul. So I think there are just a lot of examples like this. The difficulty is that these are examples whose lights have shined, have shown in smaller venues. Mm. They're, they're not the sort of people that make it to the evening news or do something tremendous or silly, and then there's a lot of national coverage, but they're people who, again, are patiently trying to unpack real world situations and patiently applying what they know as Christian believers to those real world situations. Well, I, th I think that's a good point though of what we were just saying, because you know, it's, it's the extremes that are going to get a ton of the, the airplay or a ton of the broad audience, because um, when, when you're in the mindset of quick, easy, help me, help me, you know, understand or help me, you know, not spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, you're going to look for those people and not so much, you know, the, the Tishes or the, you know, the Tim Kellers or the Esau's or, or anything like that. Wait, I've, got, I've got, I've got a lot to do. Don't bother me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I would be curious uh, to hear your thoughts too. And, you know, we, we've talked about science and we've talked about uh, the political nature of it. Um, as well. And I think there, there's sometimes in churches can be a strong tendency to go, um, that, that is not our responsibility to do that. Like it's not our responsibility to engage that. Um, and, and I, I would disagree because I think, you know, uh, the gospel affects, all, and you even, you even talk about it in this book, the gospel affects all of our lives, um, as well. And I would just love to hear, um, your thoughts on just, just that and why it's so important for us not not to just leave it to you know the the scholars or the Christian educators, right. but even as pastors to engage in this stuff. Right, I, I do think that that the, the beginning point is again as you suggested the, the biblical teaching that uh, all things were made in Christ, so John chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, particularly Colossians chapter one, and all things hold together in Christ. So um, a believer in Christ has the motivation. Not, not necessarily to know in detail, but to appreciate what has come into existence through the word. And uh, to do that at a, at a, a, a lay level, an introductory level is certainly appropriate. And you don't want people trying to uh, pontificate on things they don't know about. But again, I think that the local church can be a, a, a place where people share what they know, where they're cautious about uh, uh, making extreme statements. But where then, by as believers benefit from what other believers know, they're able to gain a fuller sense of the beauty, the glory, the complexity of the world that, that God has made 
and as believers, they know through, made through Christ. So these theological principles combined with the sense that the church is a place where people are going to share their gifts, share their knowledge, share their abilities, makes me have confidence, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary, but it makes me have confidence that local churches, denominations, uh, religious organizations can be the place of good dialogue between laity, those who are pastors, those with specialized knowledge, those without specialized knowledge, but with curiosity to engage with each other and to learn positively from each other. Yeah. Uh, are there any good examples that you've seen of people who do that throughout history? Yes, I, I do think uh, the, the uh, in the English era, English history, after the Thomas Cromwell era, era that came to an end in 1660, the, the uh, monarchy was reimposed and higher education was pretty much uh, limited to, again, people who were members of the Church of England, there sprang up what were called dissenting academies. These were schools organized by dissenting ministers, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, uh, ministers who, because they weren't in the Church of England, really had lost all their position and who were, in some cases, quite, quite badly uh, treated by, by the authorities. But ministers like Philip Doddridge had in his home a series of students, some of whom were encouraged to be to become among the leading, uh, we would say scientists, the word didn't exist then, but leading students of, of uh, the natural world. Some became really important classical scholars, Greek and, and uh, Hebrew and, and Latin. And, and these were people who were, who were doing this kind of educational work outside of the mainstream and, and with a lot of opposition and who yet were, were trying to see the life of Christ, the potential that God had made the world as something for all people, including those who were excluded from the uh, educational mainstream. So the dissenting academy, I think a real, real positive example historically of this kind of full orbed attention and interest in the world that God had made from a very strong Christian position. Mm. That even makes me think of like that, that could be something that is happening today too, of what you were talking about with the, with the dissenting of it. Um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I mean, just, uh, the, the idea that, that a local church could have serious discussion of some of the things that are uh, uh, controversial in society, but to do so not with the uh, intent of adding to the partisan activity, mm -hmm. but enlightening the congregation certainly could be done today. Yeah. Um, one last thing uh, I would love to ask you is, um, you know, how do you go about like looking for those types of voices or what are the things that you've seen throughout history of like, these are, these are what these people tend to look like. Um, because, because as you were, you know, as we've said a couple of times throughout this, um, it's hard to find those types of voices yeah. and it's hard to find those types of people because they are not getting the spotlight or the attention. Right, I do think, I feel fortunate to have been a historian and since charged with the, the, the task of communicating to students uh, more than what they bring uh, into college from high school, but then also uh, had the privilege of doing research. I've, I've been interested in questions of uh, the Bible, slavery and race, and, and uh, this, what, what, a, what a, a terrific joy it's been to, to discover individuals like Daniel Coker, for example. He was one of the founders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church with, with Richard Allen. And in 1810, or maybe 1812, sometime around that, that time, and, it, and just in the very first generation of African-Americans who learned to read, published a short but really powerful meditation on the scriptures and why understanding the whole of the scriptures, you could see that the Bible was pointed against enslavement. Now, Daniel Coker is not a household word. I mean, he, he, uh, you know, I never heard of him until I probably was studying this for, for years after years. Uh, a white Methodist at the same time, Freeborn Garrison, who, who's, who is actually known a little bit in Canada, the United States for uh, helping organize the Methodist church, also published a really uh, insightful work trying to show how many scriptures and the general pattern of scripture 
would give a Christian a strong basis to say that American slavery is wrong. And again, freeborn Garrison is not, not a household word, but by, by researching over time, it's just been such a delight to find figures like this who, in a sense, have become, how do you put it, historical friends or, or, or people that I really admire that I would not have known about. So I think for the present, the payoff would be, well, if you're interested in something, do begin with people who are known as the, the spokeswomen and the spokesmen about that something, but push further. Try to, try to get beneath the, the, the shouting and try to find those voices that are pulling things apart, that are trying to, trying to be really helpful and really discerning with what they're trying to say about any of the modern problems. And those are the ones I think will surprise people about how, how refreshing, how clear, how encouraging those voices are. Well, I know that we've covered uh, a ton of stuff. Is there anything else just top of mind that you want to make sure? Oh, no, you've done a great job uh, kind of scoping out the book and, and uh, the, the new material is added for this reprinting of, of, the, of the volume. Awesome. Well, I know that people are going to, you know, pick up the book, keep up with you. Where's the place to go to do all those things, Mark? Well, thank you. The uh, Erdman's Publishing Company and Amazon will, will take care of book needs in these days. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for doing the work. Thank you for having me. Coming out of that conversation, I think the biggest thing for me, and again, it's just something that we're going to keep talking about here on the podcast, you know, episode after episode is the importance of engaging our thinking and our intellect in this conversation and really thinking about the about life and how life intersects with faith and for those of us who are uh, followers of of Jesus or or regardless of whether or not you are a follower of Jesus I think just the importance of engaging our brains and our ability to think for ourselves and not give up our ability or our, um, our decision to think for ourselves and to engage in many of the more difficult topics that are happening. And I think there's a strong tendency to, to just give that up, to let somebody else do the thinking for us because we value other stuff even more until we find ourselves already engaging in ideas or, or I don't want to say falling victim to, but we find ourselves feeling the effects of ideas that we have readily accepted instead of thoughtfully engaging in. And I think that there is a temptation for those of us who are particularly a fit of faith or have some faith background to give up our ability to think or think that it is not that important. I mean, that's part of my background as well. I didn't think it was important to engage in some of these deeper questions about faith. I just didn't think it was important. I thought more th other things were more important than that. And slowly, probably over the, I mean, I could, I could say, you know, over my entire life, but particularly over the um, probably last three-ish years or something like that, it's been something that I've just realized more and more how important it is for us to engage in these topics, to engage in these subjects and engage in our thinking. You know, another area to where we uh, talk about this as well is in the ep episode that I did with Caitlin Chess. And so we'll, we'll link to that episode as well for that but those are just some of the ideas that I have um and just thinking about it and trying to you know put more um coherent thoughts together so that's some of the stuff that I'm thinking about I will give you a heads up that we are having Mark back on the podcast here in a few uh weeks and so looking forward to having that conversation and uh and yeah so if you have something, as I've mentioned, you know, earlier in the podcast or an idea or a subject or someone that you think would be great for us to talk with on the podcast, please reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you about that. 
And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. Actually, I do want to say, uh, leaving a rating, writing a review of the podcast, sharing some of your things that you've taken away from these conversations is a great way to help us just expand these conversations and make these conversations more normal and not make the, the exception because it's important for us to have these types of conversations. Like, not just this type of conversations, but a lot of the conversations that we're having on the Learner's Corner podcast. And so, yeah, I do want to say thank you to Mark for being on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music as well. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. And my name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.